Hi, this is Todd Kajian, professor of psychology at George Mason University and author of The Upside of Your Dark Side. Um, in today's conversation, I'm going to be talking about how people can better manage their psychology to become a better leader, better friend, better parent, um, better business person. And really talking about how we can use the latest science on psychological flexibility and emotional agility um, to be able to tap into some of the darker, more difficult sides of our personality that we tend to dismiss prematurely so that we can be experience more meaning in our lives, experience more happiness, and be more productive, successful, and fulfilled. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Todd Cashdan is professor of clinical psychology at George Mason University and a world-renowned authority on well-being, strengths, social relationships, stress, and anxiety. His life is devoted to increasing the amount of well-being in this world. He uses cutting-edge science to help people function optimally in life and business. Todd has written four books, Curious, Designing Positive Psychology, Mindfulness, Acceptance, and Positive Psychology, and the book we're talking about today, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. Todd, I'm really excited to have you on the show today and talk about the upside of your dark side. So welcome. Nice to be here. Hey, so here's the thing. I had this very lively discussion a week ago when we were watching your TED talk, your TEDx talk about this whole topic uh, about being a mad scientist and getting curious about your life. But it also included elements of the upside of your dark side. And a lot of people were challenging the idea that we need to embrace our dark side. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this because now I can actually have a discussion on this topic with the person who actually started this discussion. Uh, so tell us your story. What led you to writing this book? What led you to thinking about the upside of your dark side and writing this book? Probably like most authors, this book is a combination of my personal experience and then the scientific research that sort of drew my attention. I was a finance major in college. My grandmother was one of the first women to work on the New York Stock Exchange floor, wow. uh, one of the women to break the glass ceiling. And so there are pictures of me at seven years old holding the Wall Street Journal next to my twin brother holding the Wall Street Journal. And we were meant to be the next Gordon Geckos, a, twin, a pair of us twins on Wall Street. And I worked on the floor for several years and that gave me a great insight into personality, morality, psychology. And, you know, I had an opportunity to wild things and wild parties and be stressed out of my mind at 22 years old. I had orthopedic implants in my shoes from the stress of working on the floor of the stock exchange when an <laughs> earnings report came out. And when I was there, I hung out with a few friends who said, you know, at three o'clock in the morning on the golf course, when you're very persuadable at that point. And said, hey, why don't you flip your worlds? You read all these books about the science of intelligence and love on your free time. Like, why don't you work in psychology and then just invest money in stocks when you get home? And that was it. I just switched to psychology. And the beauty of working in the business world before entering psychology was to realize how things think about human beings first as opposed to thinking about 
the the flavor of the week. And I know that entrepreneurs are a big part of your audience. And yeah. you know, you had the emotional intelligence fad, and you had um, the positive emotion and optimism fad, and you've had right now is a mindfulness fad. And one thing that I always try to do is I'm an anti-parsimoniist. I don't try to find the simplest explanation for human behavior. I try to capture the complexity that drives people towards success or failures. And one thing that I've realized is that we have been limited by focusing on each person focuses on a small piece of the elephant in terms of their favorite personality trait or emotional experience. And nobody's putting this holistic picture together, which is when you're faced with difficult situational moments, you know, when it's a negotiation, when it's you're in an argument with your partner, when it's in your kids are being tyrants and refuse to go to bed at three o'clock in the morning. Um, what is the best way to get the best possible outcome in those moments? And when you think about this over the amount of decision points over time, you realize that the positive parts of our personality are insufficient to get through life. Mm. And it's an honest, honest facet of it. You know, we're gonna, we can't control other people. People are going to be annoying, grating, ungrateful, argumentative, bullying, quarrelsome. And, and these are people that we, are, we do not need to form friendships with, but we need to relate to when we're in lines for stores, when we're in an organization and in families, when there's some people we love and some people we would prefer to be exported to a different family. And this led me to this book of what are the benefits of the less socially acceptable sides of our personality and what are the costs of the parts of our personality that are most beloved, particularly in the culture of the United States, which focuses so much on being cheerful and optimistic and having a happy face on and having that emotional labor tapped onto us. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, we have been brought up as a society and we've been brought up in this culture overall in the world today to believe that there is positivity is the only way through everything or that we need to use these positive emotions all the time or that we need to harness our positive side and completely disempower or not only disempower, but not give any acknowledgement to the dark side, to the negative side or to the side of us that we don't necessarily always like. That's right. I mean, I mean, I was just thinking of this today as thinking up to this, our conversation which is when I talk to thought leaders in different companies and people that want to be to change the world, you know, they want to have their TED talk. They want to influence 1000 people to adopt this new technology. And they convince these venture capitalists of the hundreds of options available, that they're the person, their ideas are worthy of investing in. We can whisper it, but let's not whisper it. There's a certain level of narcissism involved here mm -hmm. of the idea of that I have these grandiose ideas I can be the change agent. I can be the catalyst. I'm the person you should invest your money in. Not all those other smart and well-intentioned people that are out there. I have skills and strengths that the world has not fully appreciated yet. These elements of narcissism are not something you want to squelch to be selfless and to be kind and agreeable 100% of your life. And what I'm saying is that depending on the situational demand that you're facing, is that sometimes being narcissistic is exactly the appropriate behavioral set you should be using. And for entrepreneurs to hold that back, now that's, I'm not saying to become a narcissistic person. I'm thinking of it more as in moments. There are mm -hmm. moments where narcissism is a better state to be in and you will function better, you'll form better relationships and get greater progress towards the goals that you want. If that's getting venture capitalist money, if that's getting buy-in from a partner to work with your organization, if that's convincing someone to put your product on the shelves, 
sometimes narcissism works better than being kind and agreeable. Mm, absolutely. And this is something, this is a battle I've had inside of me because part of me says, well, that's not a good thing to do. And I personally, I know some of my strengths. One of them is being very competitive. I'm very competitive by nature. And another one of them is to prove people or to prove people wrong sometimes or to show it to them that I could do it. And in some ways, they might be narcissistic or in some ways, they might be more along the lines of this is not necessarily the side of me that's always positive and upbeat, but that's the side of me that gets stuff done. That's the side of me that actually makes stuff happen when everything is on the line. And I love that part of me, but sometimes I have come to believe that I should not embrace that enough. So Manny, I love what you said. So the title of this book, I wish I could have done how to redo. I wish it was called Psychological Agility mm-hmm. because the goal isn't just about playing with the dark side. The goal of this book is to provide the science so that you, Manny, and the other people that think like you do not battle yourselves, beat yourselves up over this idea of, wow, I really don't like this narcissistic part of myself. I really don't like when I'm take over conversations and I'm dominant. I really don't like to see people kind of be quiet around me because I'm running the table with a great story and great ideas. And I can see people that are having like an adverse reaction to me. And that, that makes me feel bad inside. And I hate the fact that sometimes I have to argue and yell at my kids to convince them that what they're doing is inappropriate. Which, But the idea of leaving those parts of yourself off the table to prematurely discard these tools in your psychological toolbox makes you less functional in life. And the really, and here's the really important piece that I, I don't want to lose. It makes you a better friend. It makes you a better romantic partner. It makes you a better parent because when you have moments of taking care of your own needs and putting yourself first and making sure that your values, that you take stands and are willing to take the friction, you have more energy and are more amenable to people that think differently than you in other parts of your life. Mm. And I think I can hear someone on the other side of the spectrum who's thinking, well, because harnessing those dark side, harnessing the power of those emotions that aren't always positive or uplifting can lead you to really bad places in the long term. But I guess that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that we need to do this 100% of the time. Not even close. I mean, just just think about the myth of Steve Jobs, right? It's, it's mythological now. Depending on the book you read, he's either this incredibly curmudgeonly, narcissistic, illogical genius, or he's an incredible visionary who has such care for the mission and such great close friends in his inner circle that he actually was able to have this great ability to not care what everybody thinks. Now, neither of those are going to be accurate. It's a messy combination, just like every one of us happens there. And the idea is to think about your personality as not who you are, but your personality is what you express in moments. So when when I say that somebody is an introverted person, which Susan Cain has made incredibly popular with her quiet revolution, Mm -hmm. I think I can express this a little bit better, is that it's not either whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. I would say that you can describe yourself as an introverted if On a typical week, there are more moments when you act introverted than you act extroverted. But that means that a large minority of your moments, you are gregarious, 
you are energetic around a lot of people. It might depend what types of people you like having the spotlight. Again, it might depend what the situation is, what the stakes are. But it's not as if an introvert means across space and time. You don't want the spotlight on you. You prefer to be quiet. You like solitary activities and you get really depleted when you spend time with other people. Well, no, it depends. And each person has to learn what situations charge your batteries and what situations situations depletes you. This more sophisticated view of personality allows us to create room for moments of what we'd call darkness, which is to be a little dominant, a little cold, a little narcissistic, a little bit selfish. Yeah, that is almost the essence of being human. And we can go back in history, we can go back in time and look at all the great leaders, all the great people who have achieved all sorts of greatness in all walks of life, whether it be entrepreneurial or whether it be freedom fighters like Mahatma Gandhi or... Nelson Mandela, they all have the side of them that we don't necessarily agree with, but they harness that. Right. I mean, Ben Horowitz, in his book, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he does a really great distinction, which is that in the business world, and I also think it relates to life, there is leadership at wartime and leadership at peace. Mm -hmm. And this is another way of expressing what I'm saying, which is the goal is to be agile enough that you could modify your behavior so that you can function at war, you are not the same person in those situations. If you are an agile person, you will not look like the same person. If you do, that shows that you're rigid. It shows that you're not recognizing that the level of autonomy that you can give during times of peace to the people that you lead in an organization, for example, or in, in a family is different than when you're at war. And the competition is fierce and people's jobs are at stake and the company's at stake. And there really is a situation where the loss could be severe. And when you're in the midst of, in a family situation, if there's an, the imminent possibility of divorce, the way that you need to behave in that situation, the great care and precision in choosing your words is different than just a random Tuesday at four o'clock when you go home to see your romantic partner and if there are kids at home or not at home. You have more degrees of freedom. To not recognize that the situation pulls for certain behaviors that will get the best possible outcome is the opposite of being agile. Mm, yeah, this is so key. So let's take an example. Like Maybe it's better if we explain to our listeners with an example. And the example of anxiety comes to mind. A lot of people want to stay away from anxiety. But anxiety by itself is not necessarily good or bad, right? Absolutely. So I just gave a workshop. I mean, I've been working with Customs and Border Protection in the United States for several years now. And I work with mid-level managers who are going to be the senior leaders. And they're basically protecting our country. Border Patrol, you know, I mean, they're protecting all the transport, all the food that comes in and out of our country. It's a crazy task. Their job is about finding errors and mistakes. There's no positive thing they're looking for. They're looking for the one piece of fruit that might have a virus from Malaysia. They're looking for the one person out of, you know, three million on a given day who's potentially dangerous and has malevolent intentions to walk onto an airplane. Now, they're on the wall of their headquarters at Customs and Border Protection is the, the word vigilance. It is one of their three core values. Their job is to be anxious. Their job is to look, to predict ahead of time what are all the catastrophic scenarios that could happen today in California for all of the airlines and all of the cargo ships that are coming into our harbors and coming into our airports, what are all the things that could go wrong? Think about that. Be pessimistic. 
be anxious, worry about it such that if things go wrong, I'll be prepared for it. And if things don't go wrong, I'll be so grateful and positive, much more so than any optimistic person on the planet. Optimists don't fare well at this job. It's what we call defensive pessimists, people that brace for the worst, but hope for the best. And if you try to make these defensive pessimists less anxious, because there's been scientific studies on this, if you give them relaxation training, if you have them visualize their best selves, if you have them perseverate on their strengths and how they can use them in different ways, here's what happens. They perform worse at their job. They need their anxiety. For them, anxiety is the fuel. Now, for optimists, it's the opposite. Their fuel is positive experiences, exuberance, and joy. And what this means as a leader in an organization is that if you do a one-size-fits-all training and expect one-size-fits-all strategies, you will lose the powers and the strength of half of your workforce if you have an even amount of defensive pessimists and optimists. And so it's really of Anxiety can be incredibly useful. And if we try to take that away, we can often steal people's superpowers. Yeah, and I'm going to take an example from my daily life and from the life of any entrepreneur. Maybe we're going in for a deal or maybe we're about to give a big speech or something like that. Now, it's not okay to have no anxiety in that moment because lack of anxiety leads to boredom and lack of attention. And it's not okay to have too much anxiety either because that can leave us overwhelmed. The key here is for us to have that anxiety and be able to harness it to perform at our very best, to be ex extremely focused, to be extremely vigilant, aware, and give our very best when that is happening. I would even add one more level, right? Because you're, you're talking about in, in science, not to use jargon, right? Yerkes Dodson's law, which is yes. the middle way is the best way. And I actually think there's sometimes where you want to be very anxious and worrying a ton. When we experience it, so let's 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 use the most common experience in the world, in the business world elsewhere, is public speaking situations. And so a lot of your listeners, whether you have to present at a meeting, present at a conference, it's extremely normal to be anxious. It is the number one fear in the world, public speaking anxiety. So when you get anxious, this is a signal. As opposed to trying to get rid of it, which is what almost everyone does. And I've been backstage when I gave a talk to, uh, I think it was like 1,000 people in, uh, in Germany. The woman next to me said, listen, just relax. There's no reason for you to be anxious. And I just turned to her and said, do you think that I didn't think of that ahead of time? Like, maybe I should be a little bit more calm. Instead of having that voice in your head, don't be anxious. You know your material. What I would say is, what is your anxiety trying to tell you? Now, it's a signal. It's giving you a sign. Of, does it mean that you're about to speak something that you don't believe in? Does it mean that you are not, you don't really know exactly this audience and what they want compared to your canned talk you give to other audiences? Does it mean that you're going to try to be funny, even though that's not really in your repertoire? It's not really part of the way you're really better at being stoic. You're really better at being fact-driven. Does it mean that you haven't prepared enough? Does it mean that you don't know mm -hmm. what you want to do today that's different from a talk that you've given the last week? So you just have to listen to that emotion. It's not always right. But before you try to remove that emotion, which you can't do, it's telling you something. And the other thing is the number one reason that people get anxious in public speaking is because they care about making sure that they're able to persuade people with the message they're about to give. And so meaning and anxiety and giving a presentation are two sides of the same coin. You take away anxiety, you take away meaningfulness. 
If it wasn't important to you, you wouldn't get anxious. If you wouldn't get anxious about seducing somebody in a bar if you were single, if you didn't think they, if you didn't think they were attractive, it's only <laughs> because you think they're attractive and they're worth your investment that you get anxious about saying the right things. <laughs> so true, so true. It's almost like we have to stop thinking that any given emotion is really good or bad. It's good or bad, but instead harness the inherent power that's there in that emotion. It's almost like it's guiding us if we allow ourselves to be guided and to harness the power of it. That's right. Yeah. And why is it that in society, we are trained to run away from all these negative emotions? What happens? Or why? Is there an inherent bias? Are we inherently like cognitively not wired to associate any sort of or to be able to use them properly? So the quick answer is yes, that we are hardwired to have this negativity bias, right? We evolved so that we have great signal detection for threats. Our brains were not designed over the course of history of three million years to be happy, to have profound meaning and purpose in life, to have a sense of self-compassion, to have great willpower. I mean, our brains were meant to survive and have sex with as many human beings as possible to pass on our genes. And but culturally, so we are designed pay very careful attention to when things could go awry and then escape and avoid those situations and if necessary, go to war. But culturally, we've been given the message that feeling bad is something that we should run away from and we should be feeling good. And we've essentially, from childhood onward, developed this allergic reaction to stress, to embarrassment, to anxiety, to sadness, to guilt, to boredom, to failure. This is why the self-help book genre and the leadership development genre is so huge and why they're publishing so many books per year. Is This is the greatest problem that leaders face in the modern world is their ability to manage their own psychology. And it's the fact of this allergic reaction to feeling uncomfortable pushes us to make risk-adverse decisions. We do not think about what is the best possible decision? We think of what is this decision that will lead to make that can cover my ass and reduce the possibility of failing and losing my status, power and money and relationships. And that is not a way to be successful in business. It's a way to be decent. But I don't think most people become entrepreneurs and enter the business world to be decent. They want to do great work, passionate mm -hmm. work, trailblazing work. And to do that, the first thing you have to do is really manage your psychology. Even when it comes to learning the tools of the exact trade that you're in, is that you need to figure out, am I at a place where I can deviate from what other people are saying? It takes a lot of distress tolerance, mm -hmm. a lot of gumption and courage to go against the grain of what everyone else is doing. Just as like, you know, the most common example I can think of is right now you have people that would be creating the cure for HIV, for Alzheimer's disease, for cancer. And right now they're creating apps for smartphones. This is where all the modern the brain trust is heading right now. And the question is, do you have the courage to go someplace else other than mobile phone applications? Because there's something else coming on the horizon, but we don't know what it is. Those brave souls have to be able to resist, tolerate, accept, and harness a lot of discomfort because everyone's going to be telling them that's not where the action is right now. And those decisions, those choice points, do I approach the thing where I think there's action, but I'm not quite sure there's success? Or do I go the, the given way, the common way that everyone else is going, and I can get a modicum of success? None of those decisions matter too much in your life. 
but the patterns you develop over time determine who you are as a person and what your life is about. And what I encourage people to do, you know, with this conversation, what I try to do with this book with Robert is say that these emotions are not just these fleeting, you know, psychological extras to think about. They influence our decisions. They influence our behavior. And the better that we can manage them, the more effective we can at choosing things that are aligned with what we care most about. Yeah, as you said, emotional agility. It's not about running away from these emotions. It's not about hiding these emotions. It's not about trying to somehow put them away. It's actually about our ability to handle and tolerate and come out better in the process. And I think you start off the book with the story that, if you don't mind, tell us about it, how the elite special forces recruiting happens and why, you know, that's almost like the essence of success in our lives as well. Let me resist that story because I like to talk about what's not in the book so that people can enjoy the book. Okay. But I'll just read this New York Times article that was talking about um, one of the smaller airports in Houston. And they faced the issue of there's just this huge number of customer complaints about how long it was take taking at the carousel to receive their baggage. I mean, this is I'm sure this is common to almost everyone that's listening to this podcast. So what they did was what most companies would do at an airport is just that all right, let's let's knock down the wait time. So let's figure out when do most of the airplanes land at the airport, and during those time periods, we will hire more bag handlers. And let's figure out what can we automate that right now we're doing with humans, so to speed up the time. And they did they did all of this, and they knocked down the time from I think it was you know something of fifteen minutes to eight minutes, right? So they got like a fifty percent drop in the time it takes from when you land and when you get your bags. But customer complaints didn't go down at all. And what they realized by being curious and figuring out okay, what are the steps between you basically packing your bag and onto the plane at the departure site and then getting at the arrival site. What are all the steps that customers go through? And what they realized was at this airport, because it was a small one, it was like a minute walk from the gate to the carousel. And what that meant was they got there quicker and they sat around waiting longer. Mm. And so what they did was they realized this was annoying. The waiting Doing nothing was more painful than doing something, which is the common thing of people who are at customer service. We'll tell you all the time is that I'll take annoying customers. It's just sitting around that sucks. And so what they did, and you probably can guess where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. What they did was they made it longer to get from when you get off the plane to the baggage. So they built a maze. So it took you seven minutes extra. They made, they built it an inefficiency. So it took longer to get to the baggage claim. Now, here's the interesting thing about this, which why I love this story. You're punishing even the people that didn't check their bags. You're punishing them, everybody. Here's the thing, though. Because they were curious enough to explore where are the pain points for customers and diving in there, what they found was customer complaints went to zero. <laughs> that was the problem was. But it was only by being curious and experimenting that they were able to not try to get rid of their distress, but being curious and experimenting is where the action is. So the key is not choosing the direction of let's avoid this and not choosing the direction of let's try to just answer all those complaints and give them vouchers. But let's really dive into the pain and figure out where the answers are. Mm, very interesting. It's almost very counterintuitive, but at the same time, it's people are unable to handle the discomfort of waiting around or that tolerate that discomfort of not knowing when 
it will happen. And they were able to alleviate that by making it longer for all of them to go through the process and hence not even going through the waiting process. It was really twisted in some ways, but <laughs> makes sense in terms of human psychology and motivation. Yeah, I, I remember I had this ex-girlfriend and I had asked her one weekend, like, hey, like, you know, what have you done since we hung out? And she said that, she can't wait on lines for the movies. So she always calls people on the phone, even though she doesn't even want to talk to them. And I ended up breaking up with her after this because I was just so disgusted by her inability to handle the boredom of being online. And it was a great prediction. And this goes into the benefits of boredom. Boredom is this thing that it kills people. If you've ever traveled by yourself and then went to a restaurant by yourself and sat at the bar, you realize that since mobile phones have come out, there's nobody to talk to because on both sides of you are five people at the bar who are all on their smartphones. Now, if you take a backwards turn for 15 years ago, there would be tons of conversation, meeting new people. Maybe you like them. Maybe you don't. You trade stories. You find out interesting people. You get interesting stories that you could share. It's all disappeared. And it all stems from an inability to handle boredom, to be so anxious about sitting there and not doing something like you'll be found out for being a boring person. That you just have to grab the phone and just go on websites that don't even interest you that happens. But when I have this conversation, like with you right now and with your listeners, just experiment with being in a room full of people that you don't know and not picking up your smartphone. And you'll be so surprised at all the serendipitous conversations that you end up bumping into that you don't normally. And one of the beautiful things about writing this book is it's you do things not to be a hypocrite. And so when I'm uncomfortable in a room full of people I don't know, I intentionally try to really use that boredom as a springboard to doing things and talking to people that I normally would miss. And sometimes there's hits, sometimes there misses. But in the end, it's like these everyday moments to test out my bravery. And and it's fun. It's interesting. It's meaningful. And it's much more exciting than trying to remember, well, what were those websites I went on the last seven times I was in an elevator and went on my phone? You know, nobody's going to remember what they were, but I can tell you what these conversations were. Yeah, this is very interesting because what's happening is that, I mean, what you're doing is you're being, you're willing to approach these negative thoughts or these feelings or these challenges and be in that moment and be present and allow yourself to go through that process rather than what most people want to do, which is, I think there's a psychological term which you use as well in the book, experiential avoidance, the fact that we're trying to avoid unwanted thoughts and feelings as much as possible. And that's part of the challenge of why we encounter these problems in some ways. Yeah, no, and, and, and thank you for actually reading the book because most people don't actually read it. Experiential avoidance is, and I, and I really want to hit this because we tend to think that emotional difficulties, and this is in the workplace, it's just people's lives in general. I mean, 47% of the population at some point in their life will have a mental disorder, anxiety, depression, eating disorder, something that's going to happen. Um, it's, it's a very staggering figure. What we've discovered is the anxiety disorders that, it's the amount of anxiety you experience does not is not separate people that are healthy and people that have an anxiety disorder. And we study this in everyday life, like in, in actual social interactions in, in everyday life. What we did find is that people with anxiety disorders, they were unwilling to experience the thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations that made them uncomfortable. So it wasn't they were just as anxious as everybody else, but the unwillingness to experience meant that when they were socializing, they would do things that would prevent them from laughing with other people, making eye contact, developing intimacy, learning about other people, 
testing your stories, refining your stories so you become better at working with them, persuading people, being persuadable, all of those, the, the awesomeness of interacting with other people, you cannot do if you're not willing to allow yourself to have some level of anxiety. Because if you really had to deconstruct an interaction with another person, it's so complicated, right, of knowing what, what of all the comments and ideas in my head, what can I say that will attract you? And of all the things that you're telling me, what is the best thing to say that will continue the conversation so it's lively and engaging and you'll want to continue it and you'll want to meet again in, in another situation? It's amazing that, uh, that we're able to do this on a regular basis. Part of it is the willingness to experience anxiety. And in the business world, if you want to form partnerships, if you want to deal with people that are trying to undermine you, if you want to try to tell people who are your managers that you deserve a higher level of pay, if you are unwilling to experience anxiety, you will not be assertive and have those conversations. You will not engage in the behaviors that will allow you to get what you deserve in the world. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating. The whole idea that people who have anxiety disorders don't necessarily have more anxiety. They're just unwilling to handle that. And that kind of, you know, in some ways, it gives a big picture of our approach to life. Like the people who succeed aren't necessarily the ones who are more skilled or more intelligent or something like that. They just had the ability to handle and to tolerate the discomforts that come their way to to not avoid these experiences and to not have this almost like, as you said, in the, in the as I guess Albert Ellis talks about in Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, to not believe that life must be easy and that it must be without discomfort. Those are the people, and that's what we need to develop as human beings, that mental toughness to go through life and not believe that it has to be easy. That's right. So there's a mental toughness piece, and there's also a soft piece, which is, when you are grateful for just having opportunities, you are also able to withstand more distress in a moment. You know, for me, for example, there's so, and, and, you know, maybe, Manny, you're the same way and your listeners the same way. I always have the 17-year-old or 15-year-old version of me on my shoulder, which is just like, how the hell is anyone giving you any time on a stage? And all, why, are, why are all these people listening to you when they can just read a book that's by, you know, the people that I look up to, right? The Malcolm Gladwells, the Tim Ferrises, mm -hmm. you know, these characters. And that gratitude allows me to really go into the fire and go into where that anxiety is and get out there and with this level of appreciation and vulnerability, really connect with people because I really am honored just to have a platform at all. And so there's there's a mental toughness, like this kind of grittiness that's important. But there's also this sort of like softer side of, of just this research showing that gratitude and self-compassion allows us to withstand more pain. And one of the coolest findings that I've been playing with lately is the idea that when people share their pain with another person, the level of bonding and intimacy skips so many rungs and develops so much quicker Mm -hmm. than talking about what you think is interesting about you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was so powerful what you just said there, the, the idea of being self-compassionate, being grateful, and being able to relate to others in a way that's not just about bragging, but it's about the real shared pains, the real vulnerabilities that we have in our lives. When, when I think of toughness, when I think of being able to handle life's challenges and stresses, it's not just about toughing it out, but it's almost like the toughness of water, being able to go where it's taking you rather than 
try to stop it and fight it. And that's what we're talking about in this whole idea of emotional agility, being able to harness, being able to use these emotions as they come and to wield their power or to use their power to better our lives. Yeah, and it's a great pivot point because, I mean, people for people in the business world, part of your job is to connect with other people. It's one of the biggest parts, to relate to other people, to persuade other people and to be persuaded and to know that the having the bravado to show how amazing you are is not the best way. And science has shown this is that's the beauty of science. It tests these ideas out. What's the best way to connect with people, to show people how interesting you are, how courageous and strong you are, or to get interested in other people and to talk about some of the shared difficulties and pain points that you face. And the research is very clear is that showing an interest in other people, and be willing to share the pain points in your life will connect you faster and stronger to other people. And the thing, the reason that I say this is people do the diametrical opposite. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful what you're just saying there because I think in some ways we're wired to prove. I don't even know if wired is the right word, but somehow we have this belief that if we prove ourselves, we'll be liked more. But it's almost a paradox, the opposite of that, that is true, which is if we make the other person feel that they are worthy and if we make true connections on the basis of our shared vulnerabilities and pains, the connection is much deeper than anything else we can ever have. Yeah, and I should probably say that this is really hard for me. Just growing up, I think the culture of masculinity is the idea that it's so hard, you have to prove yourself on a regular basis and you can only be knocked off of the mountain. And, you know, you go first, you start with sports, then you start with your romantic liaisons, and then you start with, you know, with, you know, your business stripes and stars. And it's really challenging to break free from that cultural milieu of you're supposed to show how amazing we are and just take an interest in other people and show of, man, this was this was not a direct path from point A to point B. And I face massive struggles and to let people in on them, to let people in that, you know, I'll just give this example is. The amount of times that people tell, ask the question of, how did you guys meet romantic partners compared to what is it like to be married for 15 years? How does that work? Nobody asks the latter question. Everybody mm-hmm. asks the former question. And because of that, we have no understanding. None of us have any training except for watching our parents and grandparents of how do you make a relationship last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Because nobody shares their secrets. There are no life hacks because nobody asks the questions for doing this. And the same thing happens in the workplace, which too many people ask the question, how are you able to get a 15 million startup functioning? But nobody asks, how are you able to last after 10 years and Mm. still keep going? And without asking the questions, we never get to get to get the knowledge so that we have the skills to work with the distress at the other phases as we go through life and mature, whether it's as an organization or whether it's as a person. Yeah. In some ways, we shy away from the tough questions and believing that asking only the questions about achieving success is the way to greater fulfillment on our part or to a more intimate bond with the other person. But it's in those struggles, it's in those painful moments that we share the most honest truths of ourselves. And they're also stepping stones to show what we're made of. And as much as we you know, nobody wishes for tragedies. Nobody wishes to have to downsize. Nobody wishes for an economic downturn. 
But it's very clear that these are the moments that are the springboards to, to reach our highest peaks. We get to use our strengths. We find out what our resolve is. We find out what social resources are at our disposal. And we learn what we're capable of. And that sticks with us. There's some level. It, it changes our storyline. Without those losses and failures and tragedies, we do not have the thick enough skin to be resilient for the small stressors. You know, when our cable goes out, you know, that we have a computer virus that's infecting the entire office, the smaller things. And so although we're not rooting for those events to happen, I think we can reflect ahead of time of when those moments come and they will, they're going to be springboards for myself. And having, again, it's a kind of like prepare, bracing for the worst and hoping for the best is this is a strategy not just to feel better, but to be more functional and to be more resilient. Wow, this is perfect. This has been so much fun. It's more about the truth that's in your statement right there. And I want to end this discussion right here because there's a lot to think about in what you just said with regards to developing ourselves and building a more resilient self in many ways. But before we end, Todd, tell our listeners, give our listeners some specific action items, three specific action items that they can go home and apply today when it comes to applying the principles of the upside of your dark side. Well, let me let me rehash a couple that I mentioned before, because I know these are chock full of information, these, these 15 minute conversations. Yeah. One is to appreciate, be aware and label your emotional experiences. Now, let me just break that down really quickly is to be aware of the exact precise emotions you're feeling because they offer a signpost for what your body and your mind is pulling you to do. Because if, if it ends up that you just say, I feel crappy, I feel down, I feel bad, well, that doesn't give you allow you to get a handhold or a foothold into what is your body being prepared to do. But if you say you feel anxious, that means that there's you believe that there's a threat there and the question is, is it meaningful or is it kind of some kind of useless idea that my mind is playing tricks on me? To be able to say that you feel anxious allows you to access that information. And if you feel if you say that you feel angry, that's what you recognize that you feel. Well, that tells you that something is blocking your goals and your body is prepared to push through those roadblocks and do something. So knowing that you feel anxious and not angry or angry but not anxious is a really important step to knowing what information your body is telling you. And your body is actually pretty good because it's got you know three, three million years of evolutionary design to get you to, to recognize something that is not you're not fully aware of right now. Your body recognizes it first often. So that would mm. be the first step is being really good at being aware and labeling your emotions. Um, the second one is about holding stories loosely. You know, we tell stories about ourselves. You know, whether we describe ourselves as the athlete, we describe ourselves as the smartest one in our family, we describe ourselves as someone that the funniest person in the room. Um, when you do that and you hold it too tightly, you create unnecessary pain for the moments that you don't fit with that story. Because there are moments when you're not going to know anything. You know, my favorite quote is Richard Feynman, Nobel mm -hmm. Prize winning physicist, is my hero. And his quote is, when you're outside of your area of expertise, you're just as stupid as everybody else. And if you define your story as you're being smart, wise, Harvard graduate, and you know, and you've had this, you know, two billion dollar company, and you're, you're a serial entrepreneur who's been successful multiple times, if you hold that story too tightly, you are setting yourself up for unnecessary suffering. Hold it loosely, 
allow for deviations in your story because you're more complex than the stories you hold about yourself. Mm. And then the third one is, you know, know the reasons underlying your mission. I mean, know the val- know what your values are. And I know that everybody is saying this now, and I know it feels abstract or hokey or silly or I don't have time for this exercise. But if you don't know the why, and Simon, Simon Sinek wrote an entire book on this, is know your why. If you don't know the values underlying your missions in life, then you are going to be at the whims of the difficulties, the stressors, and the hassles that confront you on an everyday basis. Like for me, for example, I know that my core values are independence, creativity, and influencing other people to find scientifically informed solutions to living a better life. With those clear values, it makes me make decisions of, do I choose to go on this podcast? Do I choose to write another book? Do I choose to go give a talk out there? Do I choose to leave my kids for three days and go to Australia? Knowing what your values are allow you to make better decisions and allows you to weather the storm because values don't change based on how much stress you're experiencing. Your values could change over time, but they're the principles that guide your decisions. Know your values, be aware, and be able to label your emotions and hold your stories loosely. Boom. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun. There's been a lot of uh, learning here, Todd. So thank you very much for taking the time to do this. But before we go, please tell our listeners where to find you, where to find the book, and any new projects that you're working on that you're excited about. So everything's available on Amazon, every bookstore. The Upside of Your Dark Side was the last book. Everything is on my website, toddkajdin.com. That's T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H-D-A-N. I give away all of my articles for free, not the books, but I don't make any money off the books anyway, only like a couple cents. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Todd Cajun, and I write, I write plenty of blogs, but and I'm always posting there. So the best way to, to reach me is on Twitter, and I'd love to talk to anyone from there to get to email. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Todd. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for the awesome questions and the stimulation. Thank you. So, my ambitious friends, I have a very important question for you. What is the single biggest indicator and predictor of success? Because in my reading of over 1,000 books, I have found out that there is one common thread, one common indicator that ties all of the greatest success stories in this world. And this is a factor that has been emphasized again and again and again in the greatest books ever written on the topic of accomplishing our goals. The greatest thinkers and achievers have all said the same thing from Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher 2,000 years ago, to the greatest UFC fighters of today, and from champion athletes like Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan to big-time entrepreneurs like Elon Musk. So here at 2000 Books, we have created a 90-day course specifically on this topic, where we summarize 40 of the greatest books ever written on this topic. So reading these books, reading these 40 books, can take you almost 250-plus hours And if you read one hour every day, Monday through Friday, every week, this reading can take you an year. But what we have done is we have summarized the knowledge from these books into daily five to 10 minute bite-sized videos so that you can absorb a new idea or a couple of new ideas every single day and take action on them, take action on them and build them over time over a period of 90 days. So come check out this course at 2000books.com slash tough, that's T-O-U-G-H, tough, or Text the word 
tough t o u g h to 44222 and get more information on this course the course is now live and you can join at any time and i look forward to seeing you on the inside of the course